Hey everybody, I'm Coots. And I'm Conan. All right, everybody, I'm with my partner in crime, Dr. Jeff Conan. Today we're going to talk about how to apply your philosophy of leadership. And, and if you've had me for any classes or you followed us for any amount of time, you know we're we're really big proponents of understanding the why behind what we do. And a big part of that is is being able to articulate and being able to uh, uh, just dispense or disperse your philosophy of leadership or management or whatever, scholarship, whatever it might be. And one of the things that we spend a lot of time on that is is integrated into and ingrained in our philosophy of leadership, not only within our program, uh, our DAT program at FIU, but also just personally and practically is we you hear you'll hear us refer to the Peter principle quite a bit. In fact, we have an entire podcast uh, that we've done before dedicated exclusively to the Peter principle. So I want to integrate for us and kind of unpack for us what that looks like and what that means in real life. So Jeff, go ahead and throw out for us the thirty second recap of what the Peter principle is. All right. Well, hey, this is a perfect timing of this topic because actually in one of the discussion board weekly modules in one of the classes I'm teaching right now on entrepreneurial leadership, the topic is the Peter Principle that we're introducing. The Peter Principle essentially says in generic terms or layman's terms is that ultimately everyone will rise to their level of incompetency. And what it typically means in translation is that we typically get promoted into a new position based on the achievements we've had in our previous position, not based on the skills we possess to do the job in the new position. So unfortunately, too many people get the new position and the skill set is entirely different, right? So in the clinical setting, Matt, we have athletic trainers that have really good manual therapy skills. They, work, they get great outcomes with their patients and their athletes. They communicate well with their coaches. And because they're the best athletic training clinician in that setting, uh, they then get promoted to be the director. And now the director has completely different roles. They have less athlete patient care. They have less coverage. They travel less. They're doing more administrative work. They're budgeting. They're scheduling. They're cultivating uh, fundraising. They're doing lots and lots of other different things. And oftentimes they don't really like those different types of things. They like the title promotion. They like the salary adjustment that came with it. But because of not having the skill set that's completely different, they oftentimes don't succeed, at least immediately, they have a significantly larger learning curve before they get to that point, or they might even realize that they don't enjoy that job anymore. And how many people have you talked to that, for example, started out as a faculty person because they love to teach, and then all of a sudden they got promoted to like a department chair or a dean, and, and they can't stand it, and they want to go back to faculty and people on the outside look at it and say, well, why do you want to do that? Like, it's a step backwards. And they're like, no, it's a step back, but to step back to what I love doing and what I have the skills to do well with. Yeah. So, you know, what you said there reminds me of something that Socrates said that I think as a way to apply this, and that's, you know, the, the famous quip, uh, know thyself, right? So basically kind of what you're saying is you got to know when to say no, because, you know, in order to do that, you have to be comfortable and confident in your capacity and your your ability to perform. And like you said, most of the time, the system is geared, the system is designed to reward us with promotion 
And that's the only way that they, the system, knows how to incentivize somebody instead of getting to know what makes the person tick, right? And I think that's important. And and before that, and the reason why this is so critical is because I personally believe that most people individually don't know themselves what makes them tick. Oh, you hit the nail on the head. Yeah. Yeah. So, so somebody throws an opportunity in front of them and they feel like, well, if I don't take it, I'm not going to get another opportunity. This is a once in a lifetime. This is the only thing that they can give me. This is the nat, the next natural progression kind of a thing. And that's really, in my opinion, completely faulty thinking and that what leads people to be so disenfranchised and so unhappy and so miserable later on down the road because they realize later after the fact and this isn't what i wanted to do i think about this right so let's go back to the academic environment you're a faculty member in an athletic training department and you have an opportunity to be a dean in the college where that department resides and in that same college you have nursing and physical therapy and occupational therapy and physician assistant and whatever else. When you become the dean, you don't really know, honestly, content expertise about any of those other programs. You become the dean and you learn what you can and you know your program. How is it any different than if somebody called you from the other side of campus and said, hey, how would you like to be the dean of the biology college? And you're like, biology? They're like, yeah, we have taxonomy, we have chemistry, we have organic chem, this and that. You're like, I don't know any of those. It's really not much different. You only know one, the athletic training that you had, but you know on the surface, like, no, that's not me. And you know to say no, because you have zero knowledge in any of those. But it's really not a whole lot different when you're getting promoted in the same area. It's not the content expertise as much anymore as it is a completely different set of skills. It's a complete, so say that again, because it's a completely different set of skills. And I've, I've seen situations where a dean or an administrator or department chair was brought in who had zero experience in that area. The exact scenario you're talking about is you bring in a new dean uh, for the business college who doesn't even have a PhD, who who's never even taught a class before, but because they're a fundraiser or something like that. And and the same kind of thing is there because what that really means or, or what I'm look what I'm seeing when I see that is the natural progression doesn't make sense. You don't need to have right. the previous prerequisite experience right. to do this next right. level job. It's a completely different job. It is. And go into the business world, right? When you find a CEO and they lead a company, the company could be in uh, camera making. It doesn't matter. When they leave that company, they look for a CEO job elsewhere in a completely different industry. Completely. But their skill set is leadership and management. It's not content expertise. It's learning how to lead the people with the content expertise. And it's a completely different skill set. And you're absolutely right. It is not a vertically aligned professional growth career pathway traditionally. It is. I should say it is traditionally, but it shouldn't be. Right. It doesn't and, work that and, way. And I think this this goes to what we're trying to get to here with this podcast today is 
is you and I both know, and everybody listening to us knows somebody who's in a position, whether it's a leadership position or not, but they're in the next position up from whatever they used to be for no other reason than it was just the next thing to do. And not necessarily because they wanted to be there or they had the qualifications to be there, but it's purely because of this seniority mindset or the the time served mindset. And it totally totally undermines everything like i just quoted you know socrates that that we know from antiquity know thyself you know so because we just were so shallow in how we even assess and address our own metrics of success our own biases our the our own skill sets our own capacities and capabilities and we just think that this next thing it's what's next because i'm in this job now and now this is just the the path for this is just the way it goes this is just how the how the process works and it's just out of my control it's it's external to me and, and it just doesn't have to be that way it just i just get so excited about this in a in an agitated way because it just means that we are actually not demonstrating foresight which as you know is something near and dear to me yeah, and, and the thing about that is, look, every professional discipline has this challenge, but we really have it at a large level because when you look at vertical growth, right? Take we we are one of the only that I know of healthcare professions that divides ourselves up by the setting we work in, right? Every other healthcare profession divides them up with the the type of either patients or pathology. So you're in orthopedics, pediatrics, geriatrics. We talk about you're in the high school or secondary school, you're in the collegiate, you're in the professional, whatever it might be. And the problem is if you break each of those down, you have limited opportunities for vertical growth. So any growth that you take on typically will require the different skill set. Take that secondary school athletic trainer. Where do they go for professional growth there? In some people's eyes, it's leave that setting and go to college. They think the college setting is growth from the secondary school setting. Right. In some, it's to become the AD. It's a completely different set of skills of which I would argue most of our on-the-job training. You know, most ADs were former coaches. And now we see ADs, you know, who used to be ATs. But that's in their limited tunnel vision growth where they can go. But regardless, it requires a completely different set of skills. It reminds me when I was in high school. Now, I'm going to, this is probably the oldest I'll remember to, jog my brain as far back as I can. But I took a journalism class in high school. And I'll never forget the professor in the class always said, everything in this journalism class when you write a story is you have to know the who, what, when, where, and why. The who is the person, right? The what is, what is it you want to do? The when is under what timeline is your goal? I want to be in this job in two years. Who, what, when, where, where's, where does that take place? Does it require a geographical move, setting change, whatever? And why do you want to do that? Usually the why is not because I want to be challenged by this new thing. It's because I'm frustrated and stagnant where I am right now. And I always add to the who, what, when, where, and why, the how. The how is the Peter principle. How are you going to get there? Because if you just wake up each day and say, I want to do this, that's not going to get you there. And you know as well as I do, if you're an athletic trainer and you look at the job postings, by the time the job is posted, many people have in mind candidates in a process. You don't want to sit back and wait and go through that process. It's painful. You need to be more proactive. And that's the how. How will you get 
to that place. And I am really proud of our program in the sense that we we don't have only uh, you know younger ATs in the profession who have been out of school very recent, or we also have people uh, in their mid career and even late career. Right, we have people who are already Hall of Famers in the profession. We have people who are in the professional setting, so to say, but they didn't, none of these folks realize it's the end game because there's still someplace else they want to be, but they're realizing, A, it's I, I don't have that ability right now. I don't know where to go next. And B, when I find out where I want to go to next, I need to develop those skill sets. And that's the beauty of what we do in our program, which I really love because it caters to everybody. And you know, it, you're more seasoned when you've been out and you have a better understanding and appreciation of this. But when you're younger, if you can learn these things sooner in your career versus later, you really open up opportunity for you for the next 30 to 40 years before you retire, before you complete your career, because you see things completely differently and you're not stuck in that vertical integration of growth. Yeah, you're in that, you know, it's easy to fall into that, you know, that funnel that you know that like you said that inverted funnel kind of a thing where we just feel like we're being pushed in this one direction and really what that also implies is a complete lack of control over your environment in your future because now you are completely subject to what other people say you can or can't or should or shouldn't do and we are abdicating our own control and our self-efficacy you know we are we're giving up our, our ability to even discern and, and direct our own lives and we're duped to it and we don't we're not even aware of it until after the fact because we because we you know it's all the, the bells and whistles and and the flash and the pizzazz of making it sound good oh you should apply for dean or you should throw your hat in the ring for this you'd really be good at that and and we're we're distracted by the flashes of brilliance and the and the stars in our eyes that we see because someone thinks that we can do it and really, it's because they don't want to. I mean, let's talk about academics. The reason why there's vacancies in academic spots is because the people who know don't want to be there. Right. <laughs> but that's, that's and, so we see that. And then what we do is we we fall into that line. And then we recognize three, four years later, like we wake up one morning and it's like, what the heck is happening? Who am I? You know, I, I never wanted to be this person. I don't, whatever. Sometimes it works out to where it does. They do like it, but, but they don't like it. They're a different person there. Yeah. It's a different job. It's a different thing. Like you said, the skill sets don't necessarily translate over. You do not need to know how to evaluate a need to be a good All dean. Right. Hey, you, know? you bring up a really good point because we just had this discussion as well in one of our weekly discussion boards. And that was about credentialing. You know, yeah, when you're a clinician, is it helpful to, to learn as many different things as you can so your toolbox is full of different options to treat somebody? Absolutely. But it's not about a game of credentials and letters and certifications and all that, because all of a sudden that game ends when you pivot to that next position. That next position, that's growth. Nobody cares about those types of things, right? You and I have a whole lot of different credentials in what we do in sports medicine, but if we became the dean tomorrow, there's anybody else who cares about those clinical skills that I have. And so we try to help people understand is, yeah, these clinical skills are important to be minimally competent and to have as many tools as you can. If you're going to be a carpenter, you want to have a whole lot of different tools. But by the way, when you're the carpenter and then you own the business and hire others, you don't use your hammer anymore. 
you start using different sets of, sets of skills. And so it's really critical to understand this. And, and we can't emphasize it enough that I think the beauty of what we do is we really hold people's hands, if it may, you know, for lack of better terms, and say, look, you have the ability to figure out where you want to be in two years, five years and do this. But you've never forced yourself to sit down and do it. You weren't formally taught in school, clearly. And there isn't anybody in your current job teaching you how to do it because they don't want you to move on and go somewhere else. And, and so, um, you know, if you're if you're happy with where you are, God bless you and stay there. But at some point in time, as you know, the train runs you over because you become stagnant in there. And then you realize, oh, my God, now I'm really far behind. Now, what do I do? I'm not competitive even for those new positions that I want to get. I'm barely competitive for my own. And I start to I'm starting to feel the pressures around me where I feel like I'm getting pushed out. They might be looking for someone younger or different or whatever it might be. And so always having that what you call clearly foresight is critical. And, and it's a foresight, not just in general of seeing everything ahead, but where you want to be, where you want to be and what kind of foresight you need to have to develop the skills to get to that point successfully. You have to be, you have, and that starts with, and I know I've, I've already, you know, beat this horse dead, but it starts with knowing your own capacity, knowing your own abilities. And, and I just really feel, and, and I'm, I'm, I'm convicted and convinced by this, that we just, many people don't really know what they're capable of doing in the skill set they bring. And, and you mentioned something about, you know, credentials there. And I, 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 it made me think of this immediately and, and, you know, it, it would be strange if you had the the dean or the department chair of whatever clinical department and they never worked clinically, right? Right, uh, right. They're gonna gain so but but I wanna I wanna hit a nuance here that I think is really important. I think it's what you're getting at is there is a big, big difference between working on your clinical skills and clinical ability uh so that you can generate the best possible patient outcomes versus working on your clinical skills or ability just to have credibility with the people you're around. Yeah, no doubt. And, no doubt. Uh, and I think that's kind of what we miss here is, is, is there is a big difference when we're talking about always improving our clinical skills at what point and for what reason, you know, because there's, there's something to be said for, yes, I need to have a certain amount of clinical skills and experience to have credibility with the people I'm leading. If I don't have that though, what does give me that credibility? Because see, in that second category, there's an alternative. In the first category, there's not because the end of the, the metric is the patient's outcome, right? The patient has to get better and, you know, those kinds of things. And so that's one thing. But when we're talking about this other space, let's say, let's say you became the dean of the School of Arts and Humanities at some other university and, and, and you walked in and you have never done anything taught a philosophy course or you never, you know, took it, you know, did any art or any, anything that they do over there, you've never done it all. Uh, you're going to have a challenge of credibility right off the bat. So they're going to say, who is this guy and why does he earn the right? Now, see, in a, in a clinical world, that doesn't work, right? That goes away. It's like, well, you can't even treat the patient. You've got to have the credentials. But in that world, if you don't, there's an alternative. See, Right. There's other right. things you can do to gain their credential. You can say, listen, first you admit and acknowledge. I know that I've never 
done anything in this art humanities world before, but here's what I have done and here's what I can do. And all of a sudden you show leadership, you show fundraising capacity, you show donors are coming in all of a sudden they're like, Hey, well, this guy's never painted a picture before, but he's a great Dean, you know, and he's done this and done that. And, and that's what I think is, is lost sometimes. And, and we've got to recognize Again, this goes back to that foresight, goes back to your capacity, goes back to your philosophy. What is it that I can do to show and demonstrate credibility in this space? And if you're if you're continually getting promoted, you have to continually be asking, what's the new metric of success or what's an alternative metric of success and what's everybody assuming? And that's how we navigate around the Peter principle and 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 make it work for us. Yeah. I, I navigate around is maybe not the right phrase, but but it's it's how we make the Peter principle work for us uh, so that it can be applied as I grow, as I move, as I move up. And then when I get to that next place, I'm not always frustrated because that's really what the Peter it's about promoting to a level of incompetency. You mentioned that at the beginning. And it doesn't have to be that way. You can, you know, you can go ahead. We, we have this uh, transition happening before our eyes in the sports world and our settings where we're, we're not leaving the medical model, but we're shifting a little bit towards a performance-based model. And a lot of the discussion or frustration, I might add, is not just who's on the performance team, because what we're learning is basically everybody employed there is now part of the performance team, but who should lead the performance team? And some people argue, well, the athletic trainer should, and some will say, well, the, the strength coach should, and there's lots of different opinions, obviously. The answer is none of the above. The answer is the person with the skill set best to lead the performance team. Right. And and I don't care what their discipline is. And, and I know people who are brought in as consultants to professional teams who aren't healthcare providers. They're leaders of right. team building and they help them figure out who should lead your team. And it's not based on the credentials or the skill sets. It's the ability to influence others to lead as a group for the common goal. And you see this when you hire presidents at universities. You know, maybe the first thing people always look at as a faculty is, oh, well, where did they, where did they come from? And then what's their discipline? But the reality is, again, going back to the example I gave earlier on a bigger scale now, they're a president. They only came up through one of those channels of academic content expertise. They don't know anything about everybody else's discipline. They're not supposed to. They're supposed to lead with a different skill set. And this is the thing that we're finding, I, I would say, you know, almost to a person, maybe 90% of the people that reach out and ask about our DAT are frustrated where they are. They're not, they don't hate their job. They're frustrated. They're trying to figure out what can motivate them next. What's the next career pathway or challenge that they can have. They don't know how to find it. They don't know what it is or how to get to it. And really that's the beauty of what we do. I, I love this part of what we do in this program because you can come with us and, and we just facilitate and guide. Like right. you don't have to study leadership with you or you don't have to just focus on our areas of expertise. Yeah, we're gonna infiltrate them, of course. We're a little biased there. We're gonna make sure you, it would be a crime if you left our program and didn't come out learning the strengths that, that we have. 
But at the same time, we want you to be you. We want to brand you so that you figure out what makes you tick, where you want to be, and the things you have to learn to get to that point. And that's the exciting part because some students have similar goals, but they have different things they have to build on to get to that point. And many students have completely different goals and need different skill sets to learn. Right. So here's here's what that makes me think of is this idea of people are frustrated with their jobs. Maybe they even like their jobs. They're just recognizing that I'm doing I'm I'm practicing at the top of my scope. You know, we we hear about this all. We hear about this a lot. You know, are you practicing at the top of your scope? And and many athletic trainers are. And when they get there, that actually scares them. Okay, what else is there for me to do now? You know, I mean, and all of a sudden, that's when we start to have these feelings of, I don't know what to do next. What if something were to happen? What could I do next? I'm already doing everything I want to do. And and I guess what we're saying, and certainly what I'm saying is that never has to be the end because what you're recognizing when you get to that top level and you're already at the top of your game and you're the head athletic trainer here, director of sports medicine there, you're practicing all this, what you're beginning to realize is that the metrics of success that I've always used to gauge the professional joy that I have are changing. And that scares people because they recognize the next thing is this, and I might not have that ability or capacity, but because it's the only next thing available, we take it and then we fall into that Peter principle loop. Right. And that trap. And all of a sudden now, Oh, I mean, I just went one level too high and now I'm not happy anymore. And, and Right before we make that decision, I think it's important that we pull back and recognize what's actually happening. What's actually happening is you are beginning to see that the world that you are engaging in is changing before your eyes. And what that means is the change in that world means that the metric of success that you generally would have used to determine your level of professional joy has now is now shifting or has shifted and that scares the crap out of you and you don't know what to do to position yourself to not fall into the peter principle trap and to be the next best you can be and that's when i go back to my point of that's when we understand the role of credentials is now shifting also and what we need to understand is there are other things you can learn you can stay clinically active, clinically sharp, clinically expert, but then there's other things you can learn. And that other things are entrepreneurial mindset, leadership thinking, contextual intelligence, those kind of things that we teach in our program here of this is how it's the domain five stuff. This is why the domain five stuff resonates with senior executive experienced athletic trainers and not so much the novices and the young professionals because they just don't haven't seen the value of it yet. And what's happening is we're recognizing, oh, for me to continue moving forward and advancing in my profession, I need more domain five and less domain two, you know, and that's the real issue. And that's where I think we, we come in and that's where we come in and save the day. I mean, I'll just say it. I mean, uh, and I know that that's brash and I know that's a bold statement to make, but but that's what we do that no one else does. You know, that's where we innovate. You know, we t- that's what differentiates our program from other programs. I'm not saying it's better. Differentiate doesn't mean better. Okay. There's other DAT programs out there that are better for some of the students. Even some of the students we have maybe should be in some other program. <laughs> you know, there are, there are good DAT programs out there. So when I say that, I'm not saying ours is better or anything like that. But it is something that differentiates our programs from other programs. 
And yeah, it's this- taking the student, the professional, beyond that Peter Principal trap. Yeah, the younger student obviously is still, or the younger athletic trainer, I should say, is still trying to hone in expertise on their clinical skills. And once you get to a point where you feel really comfortable in your clinical skills, then it becomes sort of a one-off, right? Oh, there's this new technique out, so let me go learn about that. Um, and so you're you're sort of caught up, if you will. And then you get more and more caught up. But what you're really doing is getting further and further behind on the domain five aspect of things. And so all of a sudden it piles up on you. Like, why do we have two years of material in a DAT that are actually geared towards this for the most part? Because it wasn't ever covered anywhere else. And it was either an on-the-job thing you learned and, you know, maybe you were blessed with some skill sets that you were born with and then you learned some as you went forward, but you weren't taught it formally. And so we turn you into a, a scholar from that standpoint, a better understanding domain five aspects and then applying them as best that you can. Um, and but it's like let me clarify something that I think I just heard you say. And and, uh, and I in trouble here. no 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 I and I'm because this is this is quite provocative. If if in fact this is what you meant, is you know you said people get backlogged. They start pursuing this new technique, and there's another new technique. There's another two new, uh, new technique, and basically you're talking about a point of diminishing return. And this point of you're saying there comes a time in your career where you could be pursuing the wrong thing and you're thinking you're pursuing the one thing to make you better, but it's actually holding you back. Yeah, but potentially it could be because you're, you know, I, I hear people say all the time, well, okay, well now this person doesn't need to take the ankles because they need them for some higher decision-making something. So we let other people do those skills. Well, ultimately you get to a point where you feel like, okay, well, what skill is left for me to learn to have a value for and you diminish your own skill sets, and you think what's more important than your clinical skills is your mind. How do I now use my mind to apply what I can do? And then you start becoming more aware. You're not sitting there wondering, okay, it's two o'clock, I got 40 people coming in now, I gotta tape 80 ankles for football practice. You're thinking something different down the road. And um, there's nothing wrong with doing the clinical stuff. Look, we've done it, all of us have done it. It's how we start, it's where we sort of cut our teeth. Um, but at different points in time in the career, some people never leave that spot and others want something different. Now, I won't say more, but something different because they want a new challenge. Okay, maybe maybe a, a fiscal bump comes with that challenge. Maybe it doesn't. Maybe it's a lateral fiscal move, but it's a total new skill set that you're challenged to take on. And I, so, yeah, I think to what you said has some truth to it. Um, and I think it's a combination of that and also saying, you know what, I just want more. But the challenge, like we said from the beginning, is most people don't know what they want. They just never sat back and analyzed themselves or talked closely to the people they trust and got honest feedback about, you know, where are you in your career? And what, what do I think you're lacking or what can you benefit from? And what are you really good at that you should think about doing this? Um, and that's where, I mean, think about everybody that you know in our profession who does consulting. The first thing they do, you hope for the most part, is they develop some content expertise. Then they become recognized by their peers as having that content expertise. And those are two very different things, right? Thinking, uh, because we hear this all the time with our own students in the program, well, I'm going to become an expert in this. Well, we got a long way to go to get to expertise level. But then after you develop that and, and your peers sort of bestow it on you, now you have to develop a whole new set of skills. How do I brand myself? How do I market myself? 
Do I deliver my presentations in a different way? Like what we call the, the 80, 20 rule, right? Where 80% is content, but now you've got to entertain as well. What are you going to do for icebreakers and closers and, and what's your business model? So now you have to learn this. So yeah, you, you grow in a completely different fashion based on, I know I have this skill set. How do I sort of make it blossom and wake it up and, and recreate me or reinvent me in a different well, way? That makes me think of some, something that I say a lot and, and we talk about is, is mastery is not necessarily expertise. And I no. think that's misunderstood by so many athletic trainers and clinical practitioners in any industry. Mastery is not expertise. And if we fall into the trap that the only way to gain expertise is recognized credentials and new skills. And, and, and this all feeds into this whole concept of lifelong learning, because uh, this is, again, another soapbox of mine is being a lifelong learner doesn't necessarily mean, and I, I would say doesn't mean learning more and always learning more. It actually means learning new and learning different. Yes. And, and I think that's critical because we associate lifelong learning with learning more, another technique, another skill, and just add to the, we call it, I've used this metaphor before, the tool in the toolbox thing. It drives me crazy. Throw more tools in the toolbox. Throw more. That's not lifelong learning, throwing more tools in the toolbox. Lifelong learning is having multiple toolboxes, you know, and, yep. uh, and I've got a toolbox for my you know, drywall work. I've got a toolbox for my plumbing work. I've got a toolbox and I've got different toolboxes for all the different things I could be doing instead of the mindset of one toolbox. And I've got a thousand different tools in there and I'm a lifelong learner. I'm throwing more tools in my toolbox. So that's a big mistake. The other one that's already mentioned and I want to reiterate is we associate mastery with expertise. Listen, mastery is not expertise. There is something that distinguishes an expert beyond mastery, and that's the ability to pivot. That's the ability to move. That's the ability to handle anomalies and things outside of the ordinary. Just because I am an expert at applying this diagnostic test or an expert at designing rehabilitation or whatever it might be doesn't make you because you're master, it doesn't make you an expert. I'm sorry, yeah, I said that wrong. Sorry, because I'm I can master, I've mastered that uh, capacity, doesn't make me an expert. Expert integrates all of those things, including things outside of my normal domain of practice, and that's what an expert yeah. can do. I, I love what you just said because how many faculty do you know who have mastered the ability to prepare a lecture? They've read something, they've thrown some slides together, and they deliver the lecture. They've mastered the lecture, but they're no expert in that content. They're one step ahead of the students in the class. And this is typically what we see as well. You're like you said, your ability to pivot, make your ability to field questions and answer things away from the known. Uh, you know, think outside the box, as we say to others, uh, admit what you don't know. Most experts are willing to admit what they don't know. The, minute I, cross, the minute I cross paths with somebody, and the conversation is along the way where they won't admit something that just rubs me the wrong way and, and sends me a different direction because I realize that, that that person doesn't truly know what they don't know. And that's the most, in my opinion, the most dangerous thing you can do as a mistake leading towards the pathway of expertise is not admitting what you don't know. That's that is. And we need to probably end on that. But I want to say that that is a critical component 
of expertise, and that's admitting where your expertise ends. Mm-hmm. And so many times we just fail fail to do that. And that is a, a pandemic problem, not only in academia, but a, around the world and, and people who are trying to establish themselves as authorities in the space. The, the most legit way you can do that, and again, is, is just to reiterate, know when you don't know. And I think that's something that's unique. So yeah, we talked about how to avoid the Peter principle traps. And I think that's really what we, what we hit here is Peter principle is a real thing. You know, people get promoted beyond their level of incompetent or beyond to the level of incompetence. And how can we prevent that by being the lifelong learner, the way we've talked about it, by developing the type of expertise that we've talked about here and, and, and learning new and different stuff, not just more of the same stuff. And when we do that, we can certainly avoid that Peter principle trap. So Coots and Conan are out. 